Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest Vondcast. And this one is on a topic that's of great interest these days, and a topic we're commonly asked to address, and that is imaging of incidental omas. And I gave a talk in part about this at the ER meeting. I spoke recently at the UCSF meeting. I th I'm going to be speaking at the Hopkins meeting. Uh, Mike Federley ran a meeting last year and is running one this year on incidental omas. The American College of Radiology has position papers, so indeed is a very important topic. And let's take a look at it. First thing is, what is an incidentaloma? I thought it was a fake word, but it's actually a word. It's an unsuspected finding in an organ or organ system that was not the primary source of the patient's presentation. Of course, then, the key thing with incidental finding is to determine whether it has significance and whether or not it needs to have further evaluation. Now, incidentalomas are becoming popular because even Wikipedia, you can see Wikipedia has its own page for incidentalomas, and in fact goes through a number of them from adrenal to renal to pituitary to thyroid and the like. So it is something that is in focus. It's very much in focus even in the lay press. Here's an article from the New York Times, The Incidentaloma Problem with Medical Scans. CT scans often turn up incidental problems that are better left untreated. Again, pretty well said. So the question then is, how often can you expect to see an incidental finding? Well, it depends how hard you look and what in your mind is of importance. Some people, I would say, 100% of the cases are going to find an incidentaloma, but that's not reality. So let me show you a couple of articles. There was an article by Brad Zawoski in the heyday of whole body screening where he said that almost a third of the patients they screened, so these are patients who theoretically had no symptoms, who were well, had findings of note when they scanned chest, abdomen, pelvis. And of course, pulmonary nodules were almost half of these incidental findings. But on the other hand, they did pick up 19 cancers out of 1,777 patients. They picked up 11 aneurysms, gallstones, and ovarian cysts. A recent article looking at how often you're going to pick up uh, incidentalomas when you're scanning the abdominal aorta and lower extremities. We're doing a runoff study. 15% had previously undiagnosed highly important findings. Radiologists and referring physicians should be aware of the frequency of these clinically significant extravascular findings at CT angiography. Now, it's interesting, 15%. 462 findings overall, 43 or 9% were of high importance, 77% were moderate importance, 342 were of low importance. Most common findings, indeterminate lesions of the kidney, lung, and liver. And that's no great surprise. And they go a bit further. Overall, 8 of the 275 patients had findings of high clinical significance that resulted in medical therapy or surgical intervention, including lung cancer, renal cell, colon, cholangio, and pulmonary coccidio. In the total, here's the chart, there were eight malignancies. So again, making the point. Now, one thing I will mention, and I'll give some other information and come back to this, these were aortic aneurysms and runoffs, and so you're dealing with an older population. One of the things, of course, to remember is the older the population that you deal with, the more likely you are to pick up an important incidental finding. That's no great surprise. Another article very recently by Song, looking at 1,209 consecutive CT urograms. What else did they find beyond the kidney? And again, of course, kidney is one of the most common sites for incidental findings. So this article should have a lower number because anything in kidney or bladder is going to be a suspected finding. So they found 6.8% of patients had potentially important findings. 
Of these, clinically significant results proved uncommon with acute findings diagnosed in 0.9% of patients and extraurinary malignancies in 0.4. So the prevalence of important findings was 6.8, but only a small portion really were truly significant. Five of them were neoplasms. So again, you are going to pick up neoplasms, in this case, extraurinary. And here's their chart about the 72 patients with important non-acute findings. Lung nodules always is at the top of the list. So of course, it's very important to recognize that your incidental numbers will depend whether you're scanning the chest only, the abdomen only, or chest and abdomen. So the frequency is truly dependent on body area scanned. Again, the most frequent incidental findings are lung nodules. You gotta scan the chest to find those lung nodules. The reason for doing the study, the scanning protocol used, you're gonna have more pseudotumors on non-contrast CT, so that's more of a challenge. The age of the patient is an obvious thing. The older the population you study, the more likely you are gonna pick up incidental findings. Younger patients are typically not gonna have those incidental findings in most cases. And then I put down who is reading this study because as you know, some people have never seen a CT scan that actually is normal. And so the problem is really not a trivial one. What do you do with these findings? When is something significant and what needs to be done? A biopsy, surgery, what do you tell the patient? And then who pays for all these additional studies? Again, many findings and most findings are gonna be trivial or not important. But as the three articles I showed you have proven, you are gonna pick up renal cells and abdominal aortic aneurysms and lung cancers and pulmonary embolism and cystic pancreatic lesions and adrenal lesions, you name it. Now, the challenge in an ER setting is a good example. Minimal history, range of patient ages, but often a single phase study, which tends to be the most challenging. Often the oral contrast hasn't gone down far enough. Sometimes there's no IV contrast. There may be a stone study. There's minimal history. So things are a challenge. So one of the things we need to do is learn, at least with a scientific focus, what is important and what gets to be managed as important. If you pick up this lesion on a non-contrast scan, you say, oh my God, it could be a tumor, it's a mass in the kidney. But when you measure it, it's 76 Hounsfield units, well-defined, sharply marginated. And this lesion here is also around 70 Hounsfield units, sharply marginated, anterior aspect mid-portion of the kidney. And there's been good articles that have shown that when you see a lesion with a high density of non-contrast CT, over 70, 99.9%, .9 it's gonna be a benign process. O'Connor went a bit further. They looked at their renal masses on non-contrast CT to determine what is important. And what they found, for lesions over sonometer, anything that was less than 20 Hounsfield units or greater than 70 were considered benign if they didn't have thickened walls, septations, nodules, or calcifications. However, anything between 20 and 70 were considered indeterminate. And so what they're trying to say is, if you measure a lesion on a non-contrast CT and it measures 40, you better worry. It measures 10 or it measures 80, you don't have to worry. So it's that sweet spot of 20 to 70 that's a problem. And Pooler took this one step further and said, well, let's use that 20 and 70 and let me go back and look at what we do with our renal cancers. And sure enough, when they looked at their renal cell carcinomas, they were really all sitting in that 20 to 70 range. 
In fact, so it was very simple. Most of the cancers, the average non-contrast was 40 or high 30s. So again, very, very important findings and something that, again, will help you manage those patients. Now, adrenal glands were one of the incidental findings that were incidentally the first thing discovered was CT. And many people do have incidental findings of the adrenal, more common in older patients, patients who are obese, patients with thyroid disease. But it's typically a non-functioning adrenal tumor discovered incidentally. You weren't worrying about Cushing's or hypertension or metastasis. It's an incidental finding. The um, ACR committee says uh, with adrenal lesions, when they're discovered, the key is differentiating a leave-alone lesion from a mass that warrants further treatment. And indeed, they are correct. Now, of course, they had some suggestions, but they weren't that willing to go out on a limb. And they said, this white paper should not be used to establish the legal standard of care in any particular situation. Well, that's unfortunate they said that, in my opinion. The beauty of the Fleischner Society is that you can use that in a court of law and it helps us manage patients. The Fleischner Society says, don't worry under five millimeters, though we all know that every cancer at one point was under five millimeters. But again, it's a good rule and it saves lives and saves costs and saves patients from being over uh, radiated. So with incidental adrenal lesions, the problem is that up to 10% of patients can have small adrenal lesions if you look carefully, and statistically, they're almost all gonna be myelolipomas or cysts or adenomas, and the majority are simply adenomas. I can add in there, there's a few adrenal pseudotumors, but most are really true adrenal lesions. Certain rules we have. An adrenal lesion under 4 cm with a density under 10 is an adenoma. Next case. Above 10, some people say above 17, you need to look at things more carefully. If you see large globs of fat, of course, then you're talking about a myelipoma. If you see dense rim calcification a little more, you're thinking about an old hematoma. But otherwise, you're thinking about what do I do with this case? Do I need to look at it? Do I need to look and wash, get washout values? The challenge, of course, is if you have the patient here, it's very easy to do washout values. But remember, the washout value, the way you do the technique, is non-contrast, 60 seconds and 15 minutes. The patient's long gone by the time you needed to go back, so it's really a challenge. Now, this article by Song, 5% prevalence in their series for incidental adrenal omas. And what's interesting, in their article, they do make the point that in a patient with an incidental adrenal mass but no history of cancer, there were no malignancies identified. Adenomas made up 75% and myelolipomas 6% of the lesions. And so in their opinion, also all the incidentally detected masses with a CT attenuation of greater than 10 were benign with no known malignancy. Follow-up imaging to characterize an incidental mass appears to have a limited role in this patient cohort. So they were saying at the end of the day, most adrenal lesions are indeed benign. So maybe we're just wasting a lot of time. In conclusion, the results of our study show that none of the incidentally detected masses was malignant in patients with no known cancer. So if an incidental adrenal lesion appears benign on imaging and the patient has no known malignancy, follow-up has limited role. So again, uh, challenge of course someone will say to you is, hey, listen, the patient has no known malignancy, but maybe you've never looked at their chest. Maybe they're about to be discovered. Maybe the first thing you are picking up is an adrenal metastasis. 
But I think this article does make the point that most adrenal lesions incidentally in the non-cancer patient are going to be benign. Size is helpful. Benign, they're usually small or under 4CM, but that's not always the case. Mets can be under 4CM. Bilateral, unilateral, not that helpful. Attenuation, of course, under 10 Hounsfield units. That's pretty easy for adenoma. Presence of fat and calcification, depending on the extent, can be very helpful uh, for myelolipomas, for example. And again, what's the enhancement pattern? We talk about the washout value. Now, the challenge in the ER or just almost any hospital setting is shown best by this case. If you look at this number and say under 10 Hounsfield units is a lipid-rich adenoma, we look at this non-contrast scan and the lesion, when I target up a little bit closer, is really zero. Under 3CM, zero attenuation, looks round, looks benign, next case, okay, adenoma. But what if you would have picked this up after you gave the patient contrast? You didn't have a non-contrast scan. Well, it's 64 Hounsfield units. Now you got a challenge. It could be an adenoma, but it may not be an adenoma. I can't call it an adenoma, even though it looks kind of benign at 64. Well, in this case, we waited 10 minutes, and it was away 15, but it dropped more than 50%, and so it was an adenoma, a relatively lipid-poor adenoma. But the point is, if you didn't have this last set of scans, which you would have needed to recognize about the adrenal, you would have had to bring the patient back because there was no way you could have written that off as a benign lesion. So an important point, I think, is to train your technologists. Technologists are critical. If they see something in the adrenal to call you, and then you can make the decision what to do. Maybe you recognize the myelipoma, you don't need delayed scans, but in this case, you would have said, okay, let's wait 15 minutes. So again, the importance of the radiologists and technologists working together. Now, I mentioned myelipomas just to make a few points. It's a benign lesion. It can be large. It can be all fat, as in this case, or minimal fat with punctate calcifications. Prevalence in autopsy series between 0.08 and 0.2 typically uh, arises within the adrenal gland. Very classic case. Now, let me show you one of the pitfalls, why you need to follow the rules. If you looked at this case, there's a small adrenal lesion, incidental finding, but you say, ah, it's small, it's under 2CM, can I just blow by it? But when you measure it, it's 50 Hounsfield units. Now, perhaps it's just a lipid-poor adenoma. Patient had no symptoms, this was an incidental finding. But look what happens when you give IV contrast. Look how that adrenal nodule, even though it's under 2CM, is enhancing. And guess what? When you measure it, it's 164. 164 means pheochromocytoma. This patient had a pheoresected. So again, it was an incidental finding, but you need to know, uh, as Kenny Rogers would say, when to put up and when to shut up. And in this case, you need to go further and evaluate this patient. I'll also make the comment that you can pick up incidental lesions that look like adrenal adenomas, like this case with calcification, and Maybe you consider this an old adrenal hematoma, but actually it's a renal artery aneurysm. So sometimes things are very tricky. Now a very common area of discussion these days is incidental pancreatic lesions. And incidental pancreatic lesions, these small cystic lesions, are indeed very common. We talk about how to manage that. It's very controversial. Our article, under 3% incidental finding, and here's just a nice example of a small cystic lesion in the body of the pancreas inferiorly. Water density, slight prominence of the pancreatic duct. These lesions attach to the pancreatic duct through a side branch. 
Here it is on a coronal display, very nicely shown there. Here's a little bit larger lesion. You could be thinking even here of a mucinous cystic neoplasm. Incidental finding younger patient. And it's not just these cystic lesions that are incidental. As we scan faster, look at this small vascular lesion in the pancreas we picked up, which was a small neuroendocrine tumor, nicely shown. Or this case, an obvious neuroendocrine tumor in the head of the pancreas. But look what happens when I put the arterial and the venous together. On the venous phase, you would have missed it. So another point to make is with incidentalomas, often they're only picked up on one phase. And of course, that is one of the challenges uh, if studies aren't targeted to a specific problem, often you don't have maximum information. So again, very, very important. Another organ, the spleen. Spleen is kind of like adrenal in some ways. There's lots of lesions, but at the end of the day, most of them are going to end up being benign. But it's often a challenge. The good news is most are sister hemangiomas. Infarcts tend to be more obvious, but there's a history of fever. Primary lymphoma and METs tend to be uncommon. And surely, um, primary lymphoma of the spleen is a very uncommon lesion. Splenic involvement is more common in system-wide lymphoma. But again, then you see other findings, nodes, liver involvement, kidney involvement, so it makes it much easier. But again, it's a challenge. So I have my reality checked. Most splenic lesions are benign. Most are followed conservatively, if at all. Splenic biopsies are rarely performed. Challenges that splenic evaluation techniques are very limited. And there have been no new CT techniques used uh, in development for looking at the spleen. So things I think about, past medical history, patient has sickle cell disease. That's why it's autoinfarction. Uh, prior studies, something was there before I have less issues. What about lab studies? What about patients on Coumadin and, ha and has bleeding the athesis, well, okay, I know what's going on. Or other CT findings, multiple other organ involvements and the like may all be possibilities. And of course, clinical history becomes very, very important. Now, when I analyze lesions, I look at size and number and enhancement pattern and additional findings, but some pitfalls. One is image on your left, that's the spleen and that's early enhancement. That's easy, you shouldn't make that mistake. We talk about accessory spleens. They can be one of the biggest challenge. Up to just under 20% of patients could have them, usually 2CM or less. They enhance very much like the spleen and that can be helpful, but they can simulate renal or pancreatic or adrenal pathology. So there's several issues. One is the pitfalls. Splenic tissue like an accessory spleen can be near the tail of the pancreas or really embedded in the tail of the pancreas and simulate a neuroendocrine tumor, for example. Uh, you can have post-nephrectomy splenic rotation, which also can simulate a tumor occurrence. So pseudotumors are things I think about. Now, an important thing in looking by the tail of the pancreas is that the spleen enhances with a moray pattern and accessory spleens also enhance very similar. So a small nodule, if you're scratching your head, is this accessory spleen or not, even if it's in the pancreatic tissue, look at the spleen itself. Here's a great example of what is a uh, question of a neuroendocrine tumor, but when you look hard, this enhancing structure is enhancing identical to the spleen. This was intrasplenic, intrapancreatic rather, splenic tissue. So again, it can be a very challenging diagnosis. If you're uncertain, then you do tag red blood cells. In terms of tumors, not uncommon to see incidental splenic lesions. 
but it's typically cysts when they're larger, hemangiomas or hematomas. Here's a cyst that's present, well-defined epithelial epidermoid type cysts, multiple cysts in this case with a large spleen. You can get hemangiomas. Problem with hemangiomas is they don't enhance like hemangiomas in the liver most of the time. Hemangiomas are in fact the most common benign primary tumor of the spleen. Uh, multiple lesions can be seen in patients with Kribble Trinani Weber or Beckmith Wiedemann syndrome or Turner syndrome. Splenic hemangiomas, the vascular, they can look sort of like hepatic hemangiomas sometimes, like in this case, but most of the time you don't have that enhancement. They look kind of like this, very much indeterminate cysts or the like. We also can see involvement, incidental finding. This patient um, had an incidental finding, I'll show you in a moment, of splenic and liver lesions. And if I say what involves the liver and spleen, we talk about malignancies like lymphoma or melanoma. But in the immunosuppressed patient, you better be thinking, number one, about infection. And in other patients who get CTs, younger females, for example, and you find liver and splenic lesions where the patient should be ill, significantly sick, then you're thinking about sarcoidosis. And sarcoid, as in this case, can involve the liver and spleen and look identical to lymphoma or identical to widespread metastasis, but the patient looked too good and the lab tested normal. Or this case, another example, you gotta think about sarcoidosis. Could this be multiple abscesses? I guess so, but the patient was immunosuppressed, so it's unlikely. Metastatic melanoma only to the spleen, unlikely. You know, you gotta be thinking about some sort of uh, process like sarcoidosis. Again, sarcoid is very common. 59% of patients with sarcoid have splenic involvement. And again, from solitary nodules to splenomegaly to multiple nodules. Another thing we can see, splenic infarction. Often the patients have a history, they're febrile, but not always. But the appearance is somewhat classic from wedge-shaped defects to global infarction. They can occur pre-op or post-op for different reasons well-defined as in this case, and splenic infarcts when they're global can cause fever. We see patients, often incidental finding small dense calcified spleen that invariably is sickle cell disease or one of its variants. Uh, splenic size may be less than a centimeter. And sickle cell disease has the smallest spleens due to repeated infarction. And here's just a nice example of a spleen, densely calcified. It's not an angiosarcoma. Thorotris hasn't been used in 70 years. This is going to be sickle cell disease. Splenic abscess, they're rare. 85% of abscesses do not have air, which means that 10 to 15% do have air, like this case. When you see a lesion that's uh, hypodense and you see air bubbles, it's easy to call an abscess. But if you wait for abscesses to have air, you're going to miss 85% of abscesses. Abscesses can be solitary or multiple. Multiple, you think of fungal infection. We think about aspergillosis, candidiasis, the two of the common things. So that's kind of a really good look at a number of things. We looked at adrenal, we looked at pancreas, we looked at spleen. We got a bunch more things to look at, but before we do, let's take a 30 second stretch break and let's stretch to the music. And I'll be right back. 